inspired the word. We're going to be in uh, Genesis 6. Lord, we ask you just to bless this time as we open your word and show us what you would want us to see. And we just thank you for, this, for your love and care. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 6. We started this last week. We talked about man's sin being so much that God was going to judge the world. He told Noah that he was going to destroy the world and gave Noah a job. And that's kind of where we left it off, God's provision and for this. So we're going to be looking at uh, the provision that we have. We're going to be starting in verse 14. Make you an ark of gopher wood. Room shall you make in the ark, and you shall pitch it within and without with, with pitch. And this is the fashion which you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, the height of it 30 cubits. A window shall you make in the ark, and it shall be a cubit, and you shall finish it above. And the door of the ark sh shall you set in the side and thereof, which with lower, second, and third stories shall you make it. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breadth of life from under the heaven and under, and everything that is in the earth shall die. But with you shall I establish my covenant, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wives and your sons' wives with you. And everything of all the flesh, two of every sort, shall you bring into the ark to keep them alive with you, and they shall come, male and female. The fowls after their kind, the cattle after their kind, every creeping thing after his kind, two of every sort shall come unto you to keep them alive. And take you unto you all the food that is eaten, and you shall gather it unto you, and it shall be for you food and for them. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. We think about this. God always provides a way of escape for his people. That's promised to us in Second Corinthians. We see the ark being a way of escape for the world. It tells us that Noah preached for 120 years. He preached, and nobody listened. You know, so, but God had a way of escape. Moses has a way of escape. It tells us that in the English version, it says that he was put into a basket. In the Hebrew word, it literally is the same word for an ark. Now, he didn't get put into a great big three-story building and put on the Nile, but he was put into a, a river-worthy vessel to save his life. Jesus is called our ark for us, and when we come into the end days, he will be our rescue from the end days when God judges this world. So this is quite a picture that's being built here, because this is a picture of Jesus. The ark has one door to enter in. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And he said, I am the door to the sheepfold. So Jesus is that door that's being looked at here. Now, this is a very controversial section of scriptures. People hate the idea of the ark. They hate the idea of a flood that destroyed this world. And they try to make fun of it. And unfortunately, Christians have been making fun of it in their own way for many, many years. I don't know how many of you have got, ever gone to Sunday school when you were a kid, but you have probably seen this type of picture that Sam's going to put up on here for a moment. Maybe. Once we focus on it. There we go. This is the type of picture that we unfortunately show our kids in their, in their, in their books about the ark and their time. They're painted on walls. 
Something similar to this. Windows all over the place. When the Bible tells us there's a window along the top, which was for ventilation more than anything else, and only one door, and we see all kinds of windows, and we see animals hanging out, the, out of that, and what are we telling our kids? And most of us, if that's what we remember, this is a story that can't be believed. This is a sad thing that we do for people, is try to plant this kind of picture into people's heads. And I'm hoping that today, as we go through this, you're going to get rid of this picture in your head. Because the ark is not something that's a childish game where the animals wouldn't fit into it. This, this ark is 300 cubits. That's about 450 minimum if you use the Jewish cubit of 18 inches. And it could be as much as 600 feet if you use the Egyptian cubit that, that uh, Moses would have been familiar with. Now, that's a pretty good size vessel. It is uh, 45, it's, uh, excuse me, 50 feet across. And the other thing that people will tell you is that you can't have a wooden ship that big. You know, the funny thing is that the United States commissioned a Navy vessel called the Wyoming. It was 450 feet long, and it was only 30 feet wide, so it had a little trouble staying, staying uh, seaworthy. We have also had a ferry called the uh, Salona, which was 425 feet long by, by, by uh, 75 feet wide. It was a ferry. It stayed in service for a long time. So when you hear people say, well, we can't build wooden ships that big, they don't know what they're talking about. Okay? So you want to give, why do I give you these things? Because I want you to be able to tell people the Bible is true. And when people give you all these excuses, they go, they, they can tell them that they don't want to know, they don't know what they're talking about. Now we'll see about this, you know, that's a big, big vessel. It is at least a football, one and a half football fields long and almost as wide as a football field. So we're not talking about a small vessel. The next picture is what, it, what the ark would be closer to look like. This is the life-size recreation in Kentucky called the Ark Encounter. They use, a, they use the uh, Egyptian cubit. It is a very big vessel. I think it was more square than they, they make it, but at least it's something you could look at. Now you go, well, that's pretty good size. On the next picture, I want you to see what it looks like with the huge cranes. I want to put that up just so you can get a picture. How big is this vessel? Those are not little toy truck <laughs> cranes sitting next to that. Those are full-size construction cranes that would do multi-story work. This vessel was very large. It, it is the size of a World War II escort carrier in the Borg class. If that means anything to you, it probably doesn't. But in that, in that particular vessel, it held, it held 24 airplanes and 850 people. This ark that God told Noah to build is plenty big enough for all the animals he had to put on it, and plenty big enough for all the food he had to put on it, and plenty big enough for all the people that should have gotten on it if they had just listened to Noah. And if you thought, if you listened to when I read this, it said it was three stories tall. Okay, it had three decks. It had room for big animals. It had room for little animals. And it said it had rooms in it. What were the rooms for? Well, some of the animals probably had to be separated. 
and the families probably needed to be separated, and they had cabins for themselves, most likely. You know, we think about this, and again, we come back to this story that we hear in the, in the Sunday school, and we go, okay, we have a boat, and there's a lot of animals in it, and we show them a picture of the animals hanging out of the, hanging out of the boat. I'd hate to be in those boats that they try to picture the kids. But you know, we have to be very careful about what we share about the Bible. Because sometimes we say things and people go, well, that just doesn't make any sense. And you know what? The way we share it might mean, make no sense. But when we go what God says about it, there's a lot of animals in that boat. And they were to bring two of every kind of animal. And the other thing people will tell you, well, the, the boat is just not big enough for all the animals to be there. Well, that depends on how you define kind. All right? If, I, if I'm on Noah's boat and I'm bringing dogs on my boat, I do not need uh, huskies and wolves and, and uh, poodles and those pretend dogs, chihuahuas. <laughs> now, I don't need one of each type of dog. I just need a dog that can produce all of it would mean I need two wolves that can produce all the other dogs. I don't need all the big cats. I just need one, one or two species of big cats that will produce all the big cats. I don't need every version of elephant. I just need two elephants that can produce all those elephants. If we bring it down to how much they needed, there was a whole lot of room in that ark. There was a lot of room for all the animals on that, on that ark to be able to go into. Matter of fact, from what I've been reading and, and been told, the average size of any animal of all the different kinds that would be needed was the size of a sheep. Yes, you have great big elephants, you have great big uh, dinosaurs, you have all kinds of big things in there that are going on the ark. But you also have rats and mice and, and bunny rabbits and stuff that are much smaller. So your average size is very small. You also have to remember that the animals were not eating each other at that time because they're not, meat is not eaten until after the flood. So you can put all these animals that are dangerous animals in our day together without worry about them eating each other. We've got all these things that go on. We look at this and we look at the scriptures and say, God, how could all these animals be put in there. And God says, there's lots of room. The, I read one time that there was room in the ark equivalent to 425 railroad cars. You could move a pretty good zoo with 425 cars, plus their food, plus you know everything else. This was not a small vessel, and I really want people to understand. This is something that God said, I'm going to rescue the world from destruction from. And his rules and his statements are big enough for it to happen. You know, because too many times we hear people go, well, it was just figurative. No, God flooded the world. He flooded the whole world. Some people will try to tell you it was just a local flood. Well, if it was a local flood, I don't know why Noah needed 120 years to build a great big boat when all he had to do was go over the nearest mountain and get away from the flood. Uh, in 120 years, I think he could get almost anywhere in this world to get away from a flood that was local. And that would have been God's story. Um, no, I'm going to destroy this area. Go, go 500 miles that way. <laughs> That's what he did to Lot, to Lot and his family. Get out of Sodom and Gomorrah because I'm destroying the valley of Sodom and Gomorrah. Get out. He didn't tell Noah to move out. He said, build a boat. Get yourself protected. We need to be able to do the same thing in our lives. How many times does God tell us, move or do something in shelter in him to get protected? You know, 
I've had it happen many times in my life where I just say, okay, God, yep, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to behave this, I'm going to be there. And usually you think, God, you protected me when you look at, look at what he does for you. Or he may shelter us. All through Psalms, he says, hide in me. And I love being hidden in God because when the storms come in my life and they beat on God, it doesn't bother him at all. It doesn't bother God to be beat on because he just looks at it and says, what, what is this? You know, and my picture is, you know, if you are living in an um, aluminum shanty and you're in the middle of a storm, that's not where you want to be. Or even worse, cardboard box. That's not what you want. But if you're in a cinder block house in the middle of a storm, it doesn't really matter what beats on that house. You don't, it's not going to feel it at all. Our job is to stay in Christ. When Satan comes knocking on our door, who should go answer the door? Send Jesus. He's already beaten Satan. Satan will run when he sees him. How many times do we get in trouble? We try to answer the door. Uh, oh, yeah, let me answer this door. We need to stay hidden in him and let him be our defender because he is the ark. Amen. This ark had three stories, had multiple rooms, had room for all the animals. And actually, if you notice, it said, and bring in food. Now, we think about people go, how did Noah find all these animals? He didn't. God took them to him. <laughs> the animals listened to God, and they came two by two, and they filled the ark. They would have been the perfect samples for genetic recreation in the new world. They would have been strong, younger animals. He didn't have to go around trying to find out, okay, are you healthy? Are you healthy? God sent him the animals, but he and his sons did have to do one very important thing. They had to build the boat, and they had to have put their food in it. They had to put the food stores in for themselves and for all the animals. Now, they're going to float on this zoo for a year, we're going to find out. I don't know how much food you'd have to pack into that boat to feed one, two of every kind of animal for a year. And can you imagine how much work they're going to have to do? Every day, they're going to have to water and feed and clean up. They're running this floating zoo. <laughs> And they're having to take care of these animals for a year. Every day, getting up, taking care of the animals. I don't know if I'd like that. I don't like animals quite that much, as you all know. I, they're, they're fine, but I don't know if I'd want to have to get up every single day for a year and take care of these animals. But they had to provide food. That was something they had to do. They had to go get the provisions. God didn't just say, I'm going to fill the boat up. How does that work in our lives? We have the same problem. We have to feed ourselves and provide for ourselves daily. We have to get into the Word. We have to get into fellowship with God's people. We have to spend time in fellowship with His people and feed our souls every day and our spirit each day. And in the scriptures we're told, His mercies are new every morning. What does that mean? We have to get something new every day. Manna was the same way. They had to get their manna every day, and if they tried to save it to the next day, it spoiled. Have you ever tried to think back to something that may have been yesterday's message or a month ago's message, and it just doesn't seem to excite you the way it did when it first was spoken? I've done it. I've been there. Trying to live on yesterday's manna <laughs> doesn't work. We need new, fresh, spiritual food each day. And, you know, that's our job is to get into his word and let him touch us. We get into the word, the Holy Spirit touches us, and he makes it living. 
I love studying the Bible. I love teaching the Bible because every time I get into it, it's new. Which is kind of amazing to me because I can't think of any other book that I've ever looked at that, that I could read 48 times or more and still find something new in it. This is how powerful the word is living and quick and powerful. Living. It is the very word of God. We base our entire lives on his word. We build our life on his word. What a powerful tool God has given us. But we need to look at it daily. Get into it each day. I'm surprised how many Christians may look at their Bible once a week if, we're, if they're lucky. The day they come to church, if they come to church once a week. Maybe once a month if they're a once a month Christian. You know, maybe some of the people have the Bible somewhere in their house that they have to unbury when they decide to go to church once every five years. You know, and then they'll tell you they're a Christian, and it's like, wow, your, your soul must be really starved. How long can you go without getting into God's Word before you miss it? For some of you, I know it's just hours. Some of you, I know it may be a day, maybe it's once a day. Hopefully nobody in our church is going months without reading the word. But you know, this is our food for our spirit. God wants our spirits to be very plump and full-sized. He doesn't want skinny, emaciated souls. <laughs> and yet there are so many people who may even be Christians, they call themselves Christians, who have their skin and bones in their spirit because they never get into the word of God. They never truly devote themselves to God. What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, the word Christian means to be Christ-like. How do we get to be Christ-like? We get into the word and find out how God wants us to think. How does God want us to behave? It is not a bunch of rules, and we've talked about this so often. It's not a bunch of rules. If you do X, Y, Z, and one, two, three, four, you are super Christian. There are a lot of churches that have that kind of thought process. Christians don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and they do this, they do this, they do this, and if you do those, don't do those and do these, you'll be okay. If only it was that simple to walk with God. But he says, the just shall live by faith. It is hard to live by faith sometimes. <laughs> what do you do in each situation? It may be different in every single situation. It was for Jesus. When you read the Gospels, Jesus did things differently every time he went out there. And if somebody tried to put him in a box, God is wonderful about getting out of boxes. He won't stay in any box that you try to put him in. If you say, God does this, and you draw a square around it, God's going to step right outside your square and tell you you don't know him. Amen. Why? Because he is far above us. He is so far above us, we cannot know him completely. We get to know him a little bit, and we think we're happy knowing him a little bit. And then he shows us a little more. And then he shows us a little more. And then he shows us a little more. Just like when I said when we sang that song, I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon the cross. When I first heard that, I'm going, well, it's obvious, you know, it, it costs you a lot of pain. And then I started really thinking a little bit more about it and realizing it didn't cost just Jesus. It cost the Holy Spirit and the Father great pain for being on that cross. They had to turn their back on him. 
Then, how about the, the pain every time we reject him and don't follow him? All of us who have been parents probably understand that feeling when we teach our kids and we want to see them do right, and we watch them make bad decisions. And it hurts us almost as much as it's going to hurt them. Because we're going, you don't know the pain you're going to go through. You don't know the pain that you're going through unnecessarily because you didn't listen. How many times has God said that to us? You don't know the pain you're putting yourself through. We need to be feeding ourselves, and the ark had plenty of food in it to be fed every day. What else did he have in this ark? Who knows? I think he probably had a library in there. They had activities going in there. They had stuff to make a new life. Why? Well, if you've ever seen the devastation after a flood, <laughs> you know you'd have to pack a whole bunch of stuff in there to be ready to live in this new world that's out there. So what all did he have? He had a lot of faith. I don't know if you really can picture this. He lived in a world that's worse than ours. We live in a bad world. We're getting close to his world. Everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. We are getting so close to that. I've been thinking more and more about the end days as I'm watching what's going on in our world right now. The control the government's putting on people and the lack of control we're having with all the riots and protests where people are doing what they want to do and realizing that we are close to the end days. How close? Without a revival, we're there. We're still praying for a revival, and maybe God will have a revival, and he'll put it off another 50, 100 years or something. Nineveh, when Jonah preached to them, got a 150-year reprieve from being destroyed because they re had a revival. Is our world able to have a revival? Absolutely. If we pray for a revival, and we have revival in our lives, and we start living the way God wants us to do, and it expands, we may be another 100 years, 150 years till the end of time. Without a revival... Jesus may be here tomorrow. He, he may be here anyway. <laughs> yeah, I have been thinking so much about his second coming. God, how soon? God, teach us to reach out and, and witness to get people to come to you because once he comes, life gets hard. We think life's hard now. Imagine when this Holy Spirit is not being shown by his people. We as Christians are really holding back a lot of the evil that goes on because we fight against some of the evil. We're fighting a losing battle, it seems. <laughs> things are getting worse and worse with every day. But imagine how fast things would be changing if it wasn't for the church standing up against what's going on in this world. Once this church is gone, not this church, but the church, <laughs> once the church is gone, how fast will Satan make things go bad? Uh, remember, he's still on a leash. Even during the tribulation period, Satan's on a leash. God will only let him go so far, but his leash gets long. <laughs> and he can do a lot of things during that period of time. His desire would be to destroy everybody. God gives him only the ability to destroy about 66% of the people, according to Revelation, which is a lot of people dead. 66 out of every 100 people will be dead during the tribulation period. Satan is given a lot of leeway, but he's not given full leeway. God is still in control, even during that period of time where everything's going to really be bad because his goal in all of that is to bring people to him. God's goal is always to bring people to himself. And he will use whatever tools it takes to bring people to him. 
How many times have we, even as his children, gone through very hard times because we're stubborn and don't listen? I've been there. I'm a very stubborn, hard-headed person. And God has had to drag me through the briar patches and the mud pits and everything and saying, are you ready to listen yet? Luckily, I've grown a little smarter as I've gotten older. <laughs> now, I'm not quite as stubborn as I used to be. And hopefully that's what each one of you are experiencing. You get less and less stubborn with God. Because the more we find out that God has one thing about him, is he always wins. <laughs> he doesn't lose battles. And no matter how much I want to fight with him, he's going to win in the end. Amen. And if we get smart, which we're human beings and usually aren't, <laughs> We finally decide, okay, God, you're going to win. Just I'm going to surrender. And isn't it fun when you do surrender to God right off the bat? And you go, okay, God, what do you want done? I'm not going to argue with this time. And life is sweet when you do that. It's sweet anyway. I mean, he's going to make it worth your while. He's going to turn all things for good. All those hard things you go through, he uses. But you know, for our own life, it's much easier just to turn to God and say, God, I give up. I surrender. I don't want to, I'm not going to fight. I'm going to come out of the building before you send in the tear gas, before you send in the concussion, concussion grenades. I'm going to come out right away. I'm, going to, I'm not going to fight with you. Unfortunately, so often we fight with them and need to be forced out. God is always going to win. The good news for Noah, it appears that he just said, yes, God. Okay, God, you're going to send this stuff called rain. I don't know what rain is. We haven't had any rain. You're going to flood us. I don't know what that is. You want us in this great big wooden structure that's supposed to float? There's no water on this plane, but you're going to float it. I'm going to do it. Do you understand how much faith Noah had to just step out and do what to him made no sense? How many times have you stepped out to do something for God when it made no sense? You look at it and say, God, I don't know what you, why, why are you wanting me to do whatever it is? Driving down the road and God says, pick up that person. Ah, God, it's dangerous picking up people. And you know that God said, pick them up, and you have an opportunity to share the gospel. You know, you, you, you have in your mind and you just got to say something to somebody. And you go, God, it makes no sense to say that to them. And you say it and go, I just needed to hear those words. We don't always know why God wants us to do something. Our job is to do it. Just to do it. There's been times when I've told people no and I didn't know why I told them no and then come find out that, they're, you know, that they went someplace else and they tore somebody something apart by doing what it is that God told me to tell them no for. There's, you know, why does God say no? Why does he say yes? We don't know. Always remember, though, his... He is higher than we are. He knows more than we are, we know. And he is stronger than we are. If he tells us to do something, we need to do it. And it's important. You know, well, people say, well, somebody will come along. And you're right, somebody else will come along. If we, if we reject coming in and helping that person, God will bring another person around to help them. We were the right person. They will be used and get the reward we should have had. But they might not have been the right person. Do you realize that there are certain people that you know that will listen to you more than they will anybody else? And I don't care who you are. There are people that will listen to you more than they will anybody else. 
And if you refuse to talk to that person, somebody else will come along. But the main message will not be given out the way it was supposed to be. There are people that I could never reach. I'll try. I'll talk to them. There are other people that I can reach real easy. I love talking to college-educated people, and God put me in the middle of nowhere with no colleges. <laughs> uh, I love going to colleges and talking to those, those people. When I was going to college, I was a blast. I love getting into those kind of conversations. But you know, not everybody could go talk to them because they just wouldn't sound good to them. They're going, well, you just, you don't know anything. <laughs> Whereas there's certain people I can talk to and they go, you know too much. I don't want to talk to you. you know, I want to talk to somebody else who's more on my level. We don't know who it is that God has in our, in our path. But I'm going to tell you, there are people in your path that you are the perfect person to talk to. Don't ever get to the place where you think, I am not good enough to talk about God. God has a, the right people for you to talk to, that you have just the right answers for, just the right experience for. You know, not that any other person couldn't answer their questions, but they may not listen to them. Are you willing to step out for God and do what he wants you to do? We are called to be disciples, followers of Christ. Amen. You know, this is what it's all about. It's not just to get my fire insurance. I'm not going to hell because I accepted Jesus' sacrifice. And if that's all somebody's looking for, they're probably not a Christian in the first place. They just said some words that were good words, proper words, but not living for him. Jesus said, you are to abide in the vine. How do we get fruitful? We abide in him. We're engrafted into Jesus Christ, and we are able to produce fruit because he is the life. Amen. I am not much of a gardener, as you know, but I do know one thing. If I cut a branch off of the plant or a vine off the plant, it withers and dies. All right? Uh, and I'm real good at that kind of stuff. I'm really good at killing plants. But I also know that even the best gardener, if they were growing a watermelon or something, and they cut that vine off the rest of the vine, that plant dies. We need to be engrafted into Jesus Christ, or we will die. If we are not engrafted in him for life, we have no part of him. Again, we all know I don't, we can't lose our salvation, but you know, the question is, did we ever have it in the first place? Were we engrafted into the vine and in, in, in getting life? And it's not a bunch of rules that get us there. It's not coming to church every time the doors are open. It's not reading my Bible every day, every day and saying I'm a Christian. It's not even going out and witnessing every day to everybody saying I'm a Christian or going to the prisons. It is having Jesus Christ in us. He comes in us and all those things I gave you are great things. They come out of us. When he lives in me, I want to be with the body of Christ. When he lives in me, I want to read my Bible. When he lives in me, I want to share the gospel with people. Amen. When he lives in me, I want to visit people and, and talk to people. Amen. But I'm not doing it to get saved. I'm not doing it to get to heaven. I'm doing it because he lives in me and he's coming out. And for each one of us, that's the way it is. When he lives in you, you will serve him. When he lives in you, you will become like him and act more like him. It is a beautiful thing to see somebody growing in Christ. 
And you know it's not them just being changed, you know, trying to make themselves do it. You see the life changed. And we watch those people and you say, wow, this person's got God in them. And the Holy Spirit witnesses that there's God in them. And there's certain people you look at and they're doing all kinds of good things for God and it's like, do you really know him? If we really know him, our love will come out of us. Forgiveness will come out of us. Grace will come out of us. And then the more we know him, the more of each of those will come out of us. It's an amazing thing. When you think you're loving people, you think you're being gracious, you think you're being forgiving, and God says, let me take you to the next step. Let me take you to the next step. And we get successful there, and we go, okay, God, I've got this love thing down. I've got this forgiveness thing down. I've got this grace thing down. He goes, okay, let's take you to the next step. We will spend our entire life learning to love more, be more gracious, be more forgiving, be more bold. And each time we get to the step and we say, God, I've arrived, God has said, okay, let's take you to the next step. And we'll keep doing that until we get a glorified body and we get to heaven. This is the beautiful thing. Because God is so much greater than we are, we will never arrive. <laughs> kind of a sad thing on one side, but he gives us the peace. And when we look at him, we say, God, you're, I'm just so thankful you're making me get more and more loving, more and more forgiving. Because it is hard. It is hard because every time you think you're there, God will put a new person that tests your love, test your forgiveness, <laughs> test your graciousness. You know, part of our job is to give grace. We are not to judge one another. Now, we do make judgments, and this, we call things sin. Calling something sin is not judging. If we say what you're doing is sin, number one, it better be sin. Make sure you have your verse to say it's sin. But our job is to give grace to one another. It's God's job to, to convict them of their, of their sin and to change them. How do, we, how do we see that? We've talked about this in some of our studies. The Holy Spirit lives so fully in me. He's overflowing out of me. He's splashing everybody that I walk by. And how many times have you gotten near family or friends and they get mad because they, they go, you're making me feel bad. You're judging me. And you haven't said a word. You just brought God into their presence and he's convicting them. And we just give them grace. And let God do his work. Now, his work may end up with us saying, saying something sometimes, or it may not be us saying something, but God ministers to them and draws them to him. He says, come on in. Come on in. Our job is to have God living so fully in us that he comes out of us, and we abide in the ark of Jesus Christ. When the floods come, when the storms come, we're in a protected environment of Jesus Christ. What a place to be. And if you don't believe that I'm saying the truth on this, read Psalms. <laughs> you can't go through many of the Psalms without saying, you are my fortress, you are my shelter, you are my shield, you are my, you are my protector, you are my armor. You can't go through much of the New Testament without seeing the same thing. Be in Christ, stay in Christ. Put on the full armor of God, which is Christ. All through the Bible, we're told to stay in Christ, and he protects us from the storms and the tribulations. We need to keep this in mind as we go forward. This ark was a big vessel, and we want to keep that in mind. The flood that was going to come is going to flood the entire world. The entire world. People are, where's all the water? It's in the oceans. 
We have two mile deep, deep trenches on both major oceans. And if those things were pushed up, we'd cover the world already. You know, the mountains may not have been quite as high and probably weren't as high. We could cover the world with all the water we have here with no problem. The water's still here. God just created great big trenches to, to pour it all into. So we need to understand, when the Bible talks about things that touch on science, it is true. We can look at the Bible and say, it matches science. Now, evolutionists can't say that their theories match science. They don't match science, they don't match logic, and they don't match mathematics. Evolutionists, I don't know what they, how they believe what they believe. I love science with a great passion. I love science, I just don't believe in evolution. But I match it up to the Bible, and everything in the Bible matches up to what we know about science. So don't let people tell you you are being dumb believing in the Bible. It is, matches up very wisely. I love it in today's world is I can go all over the place and find out all kinds of easy proofs for creationism. When I was young, they weren't there. <laughs> it was hard to find the proofs for creationism when I went to high school and had to debate with my, debate with my science teachers about evolution. It was, hard when I, it was harder when I went to college the second time, even though things were easier to find, to talk to the, talk to the students about evolution versus creation. Neither one of them are science. Understand that neither of you is science. Both of them are philosophy. You cannot put creationism or evolution in a test tube and test it. It's not science. So when people try to tell you that evolution is science and creationism is not science, don't buy it. Evolution is a theory. It will always be a theory because it violates several laws of science. So it cannot ever be anything more than a theory. Evolution doesn't violate any laws of science, but God said it, so I'm going to believe it, and it matches science. And I love science. And I go, here it is. Match it up. Why do I go all of this? Because I want us to know we can trust the word of God. When God speaks, it is true. Now, I've only been studying it for 48 years, but you know, I've not found any contradictions in it. I have found, not found any problems with it. Nobody else I know that's been studying it longer has found any contradictions or problems with it. It is trustworthy. And as I've said, if there's anything in the Bible that is not true, then we need to throw the Bible away and not live by it. If there is one thing in this Bible that is not a true statement, the book is worthless. Because if I can't trust everything in it and I have to figure out what is true and what is not true, I don't have something I can pin my life on. I don't even have something I can pin eternity on if it's not true. Because I know that it's true, I can pin my whole life on it, and I'm pinning eternity on it. You know, and it's amazing to me how many people will live and trust God for eternity, but not trust God for their life on the earth. Well, you know, I just can't believe that God's going to meet all my needs. But you expect him to meet all your needs for eternity. I don't believe God's going to take care of me and give me peace, but you think he's going to give you peace in, in eternity. I cannot have that dichotomy in my brain. If God is not trustworthy in this lifetime, I can't trust him in the, for eternity. The good news is he's always been trustworthy in this lifetime. He's given me peace that passes understanding. He's given me leadership. He's guided me. He's provided for me, which just means that when I get to heaven, I know 
that he's going to take care of it there. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, if there's anybody listening on, on the online that doesn't know you or in this room that doesn't know you, Lord, we ask you right now to convict them of their heart and their heart and just have them pray, Lord, I am a sinner and deserve punishment. Thank you that Jesus died for me. I believe that he is Lord. Come into my life and lead me. And we just thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you, and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431.